Hey guys, it's Lindsay with NBC Media. Thanks for listening to our podcast and be sure to look at our website for events that you can get involved in. See you next Sunday. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to listen to that song. It's sang by Sela, and uh, it's on the radio an awful lot this uh, right now. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of good a lot of good theology in that song. If you would open your Bibles, please, to Luke 14. Luke 14. Be looking at verses 25 through 35. I'll be looking. I'll be reading today out of the Common English Bible. Um, we're going to go through this verse by verse, so I'm not going to read all of the scripture right up front, but we'll be looking at all of those individually. Just for a moment here, I want to go back to uh, chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. We, we talked about it. We preached about it. And uh, just want to kind of go back just a, just a minute and kind of look at some things. The disciples are standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they've just finished a long night of fishing. And as sometimes happens, they didn't catch anything. Ever had a fishing trip like that? I was looking for Ralph. I can see the back of his head or the top of his head there behind Bill, uh, but he probably can't hear me very well. But uh, um, you know, sometimes you go out fishing and you just don't catch a thing. Those are not fun mornings. I never went fishing at night too much. I'd have on my kayak, but on the mornings when you go out to fish and you just and it comes noontime and don't catch anything. It's just not any fun. And I'm sure that the disciples were tired and they were weary from working all night. They were not having recreational fishing. They were working. And fishing can be fun, but as I said before, when you're not catching anything and you're actually doing it for work, it's not very fun when you can't, when you're not making any money. Because again, that's how they made their money. So if they're not catching anything they're not making any money for the day and then again as in typical Simon speaks up and first and he says Lord we've worked hard all night long and we have nothing but then he says if you say so we will let down our nets and they did the Bible says that they caught such a great number of fish that the nets were literally breaking. And when they placed all the fish in the boats, because we do know that there were a couple of boats, they, the boats began to sink. Now, I've never caught so many fish before that the boat started to sink. I have been in a boat that had a hole in it and was catching fish, and before long we were throwing the fish in the bottom of the boat because there was so much water in the bottom of it, no reason to hooking them to the little chain thing that we had. We just let them, let them swim around our feet. But these boats were starting to sink. There was so much weight in the boat. And it was there that Jesus said to them, from now on I want you to be fishers of men. When we read these early disciples made life-changing decisions, All, or not just the apostles, but many of the early disciples made life-changing decisions. The Bible put it this way. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and 
followed Him. Did you hear that? They left everything. Think for a moment about what they would have left behind to be His disciples. They left their jobs. They were fishermen. It was more than a hobby. It wasn't something they did to relax. It was work. It's how they made a living. And they quit their jobs right then and there to follow Jesus. They left their families. Mark tells us of Simon's mother, mother-in-law. So we know Simon was married. Paul confirms that Simon was married. So this was not only a commitment for the disciples, but also for their families. They left their security. They left a lifestyle that was all they knew to follow someone who had not even told them where they were going. Do you realize that? As you, real, as you read through that, maybe you're, you're looking at chapter 5 again, or maybe you're looking at Matthew. When Jesus said, come follow me, He didn't say, come follow me, we're going to go to here and here and here, and we're going to stay here, and this is how we're going to make some money. And he didn't say anything. All He said is, come and follow me, and they left blindly to follow Jesus. Their sense, they left their sense of security. Why? Because they chose to invest their lives in something that was much bigger than them. I don't know about you folks, but I want that. I want to invest my life in something that is much bigger than myself. Do you? Because everything is not about us and anything we do in life that is worth doing will cost us something. You know, as I was putting together this sermon last night and even Friday night and a little bit through the week, I was thinking about some of you folks and the work that you do, the jobs that you hold or have held. And I thought a little bit about your background. One of the things that I thought about was that we are a pretty diverse bunch around here. We got different people doing all kinds of different things. But something came to mind that we have at least one thing in common. All of our activities, our jobs, required some sort of training. Some require a lot of training, a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice. There is and was a price to be paid. Now this morning, we're looking at a couple of different parables, very simple, but with a deep truth attached to them. There is a high price to be Paid to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And yes, the price is high as it should be. Because the calling to be a disciple is the greatest calling anyone can have on their life. You know, I thought when I became a husband, that was a great calling, and it is. I thought when I became a dad, it's a great calling, and it is. When I came a granddad, 
That's a great calling. But the highest calling of my life should be that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. See, I've made sacrifices for my jobs. I've made sacrifices for my ministry, for family. What kind of sacrifices have I made to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ? One of these parables this morning deals with this constructing of a tower. And the other deals with government and going to war. Jesus told us these stories for what I think is a couple of specific reasons. Number one, he told us these stories to teach us to count what it would cost to be a disciple. And secondly, he told us these stories to teach us to count what it would cost if we choose a different path. The setting for these two stories was during the time of Jesus when there were large crowds following him around the Galilee going to Jerusalem. Again, we're just short time from when he enters Jerusalem, past, uh, uh, Palm, um, yeah, Palm Sunday, we call it. It's coming up. They loved following him as long as the miracles were being performed and crowds were being fed. They were ready to make him king. Some of his closet friends, like Peter, James, and John, all wanted positions in his kingdom. They even argued who would be able to sit at his right hand, but Jesus knew that things were about to get tough. Things were going to get hard. His ministry would come under attack. He knew this world was taking him to the cross because he knew that for someone to follow him, that life could be, would be difficult. When we come to Christ, I don't think that many completely understand the commitment that they are making. And I'm not sure the disciples did either, which is why some dropped out. Again, when I'm talking about disciples, I'm not talking about just the 12 apostles, but the disciples, John 6, 66, you can read that. Many disciples fell away, dropped out. Our commitments change, but that doesn't change what Jesus demands of us. Now in this passage, he shows us what he wants from us as disciples by giving us five different words. And you can kind of think of these points as snapshots. So the first one we'll look at is a family. And this looks at verses 25 and 26. Follow along as I Read verse 25. And it says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, turning to him, he said. And then go on to verse 26. And it says, Whoever comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, spouse and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own life cannot be my disciple. It's an amazing verse, isn't it? 
One of the things that we've seen, we've been talking about parables the last several Sundays, and Jesus would also often use figures of speech to give his words greater impact. That's called a hyperbole. Yeah, I had to look that one up. But it gives speech. We, we think about, that. okay, when he says, like, uh, or when he says, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Or when he said, it is harder for a rich man to enter he- heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's a hyperbole. We do the same thing sometimes. We exaggerate our speech in order to make a point. In this passage, Jesus is telling us we must love Him. We must love Him more than anything else, including our family. I must love Jesus more than my children, my grandchild. I must love Jesus more than my wife and that other disciples should do the same. Notice here that I said I must love Jesus more than anything else. But that does not say that you love the church more then you love your family. Friends, I am dedicated to this church. I'm dedicated to every church that I've been ministers at, that I've been staff at. And sometimes I have put the church before my family, but the fact of the matter is that's wrong. We love our families. God comes first no matter what, but our families do come second. Let's remember that. That was more for me than it was for you, but I'll tell you, we must remember that. I read about a man who was a Muslim now living here in America. Recently, he came to know Christ, his family back in Iran. Uh, They will now disown him. They will actually consider him to be dead. If you truly follow the Lord, you won't have to look for people to ridicule you. They will find you. And they may be your own family members. Matthew 10, 22 says, Everyone will hate you on account of my name, but whoever stands firm until the end will be saved. Did you get that? Stand firm. Stand firm and you will be saved. Verse 26 I think is a, is a tough verse. But again, if we just remember, we love Jesus above all else in our lives. Look at verse 27. Verse 27, and it says, Whoever doesn't carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. A real disciple is someone who carries his cross. 
Now the disciples understood what this meant much better than we do. We complain about certain physical ailments and we have and, and we say, well, I guess it's just my cross to bear, my cross to carry. Today the cross has become harmless. For most it's just a piece of jewelry we wear. But in the time of Jesus, it was a horrible form of execution. In that day, when you saw one carrying a cross, it meant one thing. They were headed for death. Paul understood what it meant to carry a cross. He told us in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in my body, I live by faith indeed, by the faithfulness of God's Son, who loved me and gave Himself for me. There's nothing that this old world has to offer that was of interest to Paul. He was saying... It is though as I am dead to these things because he had found true freedom through the cross. The idea here is that we are to live as though we are dead to sin and that sin can no longer control us. The third thing I want to look at is a tower in verses 28 through 30. A tower. Read those verses with me, if you would, please. If one of you wanted to build a tower, wouldn't you first sit down and calculate the cost to determine whether you have enough money to complete it? Otherwise, when you have laid the foundation but couldn't finish the tower, all who see it will, sell, will begin to belittle you. They will say, here's the person who began construction and couldn't complete it. Jesus gives us a picture of a man here who plans on building a tower before he starts, he must count the cost to see if he has enough materials to finish the job. Now when you get started in the Christian life, if you were to stop and ask, do I have what it takes to finish? The answer would probably be no. That's because we're looking at our own resources and not Him. Remember I've told you before when I'm talking to somebody about becoming a Christian, I don't talk about the long term of how much the Christian life is going to cost you because they look at it in material earthly things, not as a benefit from Christ. Oh, I will say the cost will be high. There'll be friends that you may lose. Some people have to even get another job. Oh, but all the benefit is so much greater. So much greater. Matter of fact, I believe what Jesus is talking here about finishing strong. In verses 29, 30, Jesus spoke about a man who was not able to finish the job. He says everyone will look at this tower and see that it wasn't finished. And they will ridicule him. Have you ever seen a house that was started? 
but never could completed. I see them. I drive around the country an awful lot. I see houses that were started and oh, they got the frame up. Maybe even have part of the walls up. That was it. And I've been going by these houses for years. Matter of fact, I found this story. A pastor tells of a story that back years ago he threw, drove through a small town and saw a concrete block shell. Someone had started years earlier. It was a church. But the project had been stopped. There was no roof on the building and trees and shrubs had grown inside the building. One of the pine trees growing inside the uncompleted church was at least 15 foot tall. I don't know the full story about what happened in that, to that church, but everyone who passed by for years, that building, uh, are, are, I'm sorry, uh, but everyone who passed by for years, that building preached a sermon. Someone started this church and didn't count the cost and they weren't able to finish it. Jesus says, when you start something, finish it. Finish well. The older I get, the more I realize we cannot coast through the Christian life. There is no such thing as spiritual retirement. And we need to ask ourselves, how will we finish? That's the big idea of that point is finish well. Notice it doesn't say necessarily finish strong because as we get older, our bodies can't handle some of the things that used to handle. But yet we do the best we can with what God gives us. We don't just give up because we get old. We don't just give up because our circumstances change and gets a little tougher. Finish well. The fourth point here is We'll call that a war. Verses 31 through 33. Follow along as I read. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down to consider whether his 10,000 soldiers could go up against the 20,000 coming up against him? And if he didn't think he could win, he, he would send a representative to discuss terms of peace while his enemy was still a long way off. In the same way, None of you who are unwilling to give up all of your possessions can be my disciple. This picture of Jesus describes two different kings and one of them is clearly outnumbered. So in his wisdom, or maybe his fear, he approaches the stronger king and makes, a, makes peace before the battle ever begins. And that day when he surrendered, he could have been made into a slave to bow down and ask for peace. Here's the message. You cannot be a disciple unless you are willing to give up control. And folks, that's a hard thing to do. None of us want to give up control of our own lives. The idea here is that we need to learn how to surrender. Now look at verse 34, if you would, please. And that, this will be under the heading, uh, the, t the point of salt. We'll be looking at verses 34 and 35, but right now just look at verse 34. 
Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will it become salty again? You know this verse. This verse is also in Matthew. You can look it up. It's also in a different place, but it's also uh, uh, related to Mark. Salt was a very valuable commodity in Jesus' day. Matter of fact, Roman soldiers were actually paid, at least in part, with salt rations. We hear people awful say, often say when someone hasn't done a good job or they have done some inferior work that he's not worth his salt. Since there's no way to refrigerate meat back then, they would apply salt to the meat to keep it from going bad. It preserved the meat. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? I did a little research on salt last night, and I found that salt actually never loses its saltiness when stored dry. Now, if you mix it with water, it can, depending on what other elements it may have on it. But if it's stored dry... At least according to askascientist.co.uk, you could take a pure salt crystal crystal, and 10,000 years later, it would still be just as salty. Pure salt never loses its flavor. The salt used in the time of Jesus wasn't mined like it is now. What they would do, you know, it came from the Dead Sea. When the water evaporated, it left salt. But the salt was so mixed up with other minerals that even though it looked like salt, it didn't taste like it. When it was placed on food, there was no flavor. When it was used to keep meat fresh, the meat went bad. So the only thing to do was to put it on the road and use it for gravel or to walk on it or kind of whitewash the stones. And Luke 14.35 tells us it has no value neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. Just throw it away. Whoever has ears to hear should pay attention. Basically it was useless. And I think the main point in this section is to stay pure. Stay pure. Pure. I want to close this little illustration that I that I found. I read of a lifeguard on a beach who saw a drowning man. He walked into the water, but he didn't go out to rescue the man. People gathered on the beach and yelled at the lifeguard to do his job and rescue the man. The lifeguard stepped out a bit deeper, but still did not respond. Just when it seemed that the man was going under for the last time, the lifeguard swam out, grabbed the man, and pulled him back to shore. After some CPR, the man was fine, but instead of being a hero, the crowd was angry. They couldn't understand why the lifeguard didn't respond quicker. The lifeguard explained, You can see that he is much bigger and stronger than I am. If I'd gone out sooner, the way he was thrashing and kicking so violently he would have probably drowned us both. As long as he was trying to save himself, I couldn't help him. But when he got tired and he gave up, then I knew 
I could save him. Jesus can do a whole lot more with us once we realize that he must be in charge. So the question, the challenge for today is who is in charge of your life? Who do you follow? Let's close in prayer as we ready ourselves for our invitation time. Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. Thank you so much for this opportunity to preach the word you've laid on my heart, Lord. Again, if there's someone in our midst that does not know you as our, their personal Savior, may today be the day that they come to know you, that they give up control of their lives and allow you to control their lives. God, if there's any other decisions that need to be made today, may it be done. I pray these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Stand with me as we sing together.